God, we do give you so much praise and thanks for, um, for mothers, for all that they do for us. For reflect your love for the ways that they teach us about service and humility and kindness and compassion and gentleness. And um, we just, we thank you for the beauty of their heart, the way that it reflects the beauty of your heart. And uh, I do pray for those two in this room this morning, Father, who uh, have longed to be mothers and have prayed prayers tearfully for the joy and the opportunity to be a mother. And we ask that you would hear their prayers. And we pray, too, for any mothers in this room who are maybe distanced from their children this morning for whatever reason. God, that you would bring reconciliation and healing and that you would restore that relationship so they can know the joy of being in in right relationship with their children again. Um, And we ask you to bring that healing. But again, we give you so much praise for for giving us the gift of mothers in this life. And uh, we pray that you would bless all the mothers in this room in in this day that they have to be celebrated. We pray too that as we turn to your word, God, that you would open up our eyes. We pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would, would work inside of us. Um, God, all the words that I prepared are meaningless if uh, you're not here to receive them. And so we pray that you would do that. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we say these things. Amen. Uh, the subject of our time together this morning is the law that God gave his people, the Ten Commandments. Uh, we have been making our way through the whole Bible, trying to get an understanding of how all the different ways that Scripture points to Jesus. Uh, we're not going to pause from that Mother's Day. We're going to press on through. And the point that we're at in the story right now is that the people of Israel have come out of slavery in Egypt, and now God... Uh, to give them the law, okay, his standard of conduct by which he expects them to live their lives, okay? But before we read uh, our text from Exodus 20 this morning, by way of contrast, I just want to tell you a little bit about the laws that we have that govern our lives here in America, okay? Uh, From time to time, I hear people say, you know, I could never be a Christian because uh, God's expectations for his people are just way too restrictive. He's got too many rules. He doesn't want people to have fun. Just boring people because they have to obey God. Uh, and I would say that that's true if you're a Baptist. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Some of you got that. I'm just playing. My dad was a Baptist pastor growing up, okay? So we've got a lot of love for Baptists. We're an interdenominational church, so whatever your background is, you're welcome here. The truth is God certainly does have some guidelines for his people that he expects them to live by. Uh, but the people think God's expectations for, uh, for Christians are too restrictive, I would say might really want to consider giving up their status as an American citizen. Okay, um, I love America. I'm not bashing America. Greatest country in the world. We have the greatest history of freedom in the world, I would say. But today, as Americans, we are actually a lot less free than you may realize. Okay, I did some research on this to try and get some of the basics. In the USA, nobody actually knows with any amount of certainty just how many laws there are that govern our lives. Because okay? they're way too complex to be counted or parsed. It's impossible to just flat out sit down and count them up. Okay? And that's just federal laws. I'm not talking city, state, uh, um, county. Okay? The Library of Congress website says that if you tried to count all of the laws that are written in the books in America, it would take you three lifetimes to accomplish the task. 
something around 200 years. But just to give you an idea, in 1982, there was an attempt made to count just the criminal laws that exist in our country, just the criminal laws. The project took two years, and at the end of that two years, they came up with a rough estimate of about 3,000 criminal laws, okay? And that's not even counting laws passed by Congress, which we would call civil laws, Okay, the total legal code of American laws is 51 volumes long and 23,000 pages. Makes the Bible look like a comic book. So uh, the best estimates put the total number of federal laws in America as high as 300,000 separate laws. And that's not counting IRS rules and regulations in addition. Okay. <laughs> John Baker, who's a retired law professor, I think it was from Louisiana University or something like that, said there's no one in the United States over the age of 18 who cannot be indicted for some federal crime. And that's not an exaggeration. Okay, all of that to say, about five minutes before our service started, I called the cops to let them know you were all going to be here. They're on their way over here, but the beautiful thing is that in, in, within Christianity, we're called to visit prisoners in jail, so I'll come see you guys so you have some connection to the outside world. Now, in contrast to uh, the current American legal code, there were 613 Old Testament laws that were essentially summed up by God in the Ten Commandments, okay? Ultimately, God's law was 613 laws, but you could really kind of boil it down to the Ten Commandments, which covered the essentials. And if you want to talk about a legal code being completely void of complexity and ambiguity, I would say that God's moral law found within the Ten Commandments is about as simple and clear as it gets. Okay, Ten fundamental guidelines for living your life in a good and just and right way. And just so you can see it for yourself, let me read it real quick. You're probably familiar with it, but I'm going to read it. Uh, Exodus 20, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. If you're new here this morning, on the inside flap of the handout you got, you'll see this passage if you want to read, around, read along. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your sons or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For, within, uh, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath, and, uh, the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that's appropriate, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or his convertible or anything that is your neighbor's. I just threw that last part in there. It's not really there. Um, That's relatively simple, okay? Even if we can't obey them, which if we're honest, we really don't, they're not that difficult to understand. That's for sure, okay? Uh, Now, this legal code, I would say, is divisible into two different parts, The first part covers the first four commandments, which violate the relationship between man and God. Part two is the commands in verses, or or the the commands five through ten, sorry, and deals with offenses between other people, uh, crimes or, or, uh, yeah, offenses committed against other people, okay? But in reality, I would say that we don't even need to go beyond the first commandment. Okay, what, I, what I mean by that is, I think the reason that God gives us commands 2 through 10 is because he knows that we won't keep the first commandment. If we could keep the first commandment, then we would have no need for any of the other commandments that follow because we wouldn't violate them. Okay, please understand, I'm not saying here that we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. For those of you who've been around church for a while, you might be like, what's he saying? I'm not saying that, okay? What I'm saying is, if we really understood the first commandment, and if we were really capable of following it, there would be no need for any other law, because we would never be enticed to do anything immoral or displeasing to God. Okay, so let's delve into the first commandment for a little bit, and hopefully I can make this more clear. Let me read verses two through three one more time. It says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, notice that God does not say, I shall be your God. That's not the way that he words it. As if humans had a choice in the matter as to whether we will worship something or not. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. The phrasing of this commandment is important because it implies that the human heart always worships something. You are a worshiper. God created you to worship him. But should you choose not to worship him, the alternative is not a life void of worship. It's not a life where you do not worship. The alternative is a life where you give your worship to a false god, an idol, something that is less than deserving of your worship. People who call themselves atheists, they don't live lives with no worship simply by nature of the fact that they deny there is a god. They still worship something. Whether it's themselves or science or nature or humanity, something. Okay, Martin Luther, the great theologian, brings clarity to this idea. And I put this in your notes so you could read, because he's a tricky one to understand. He writes, That upon which you set your heart and put your trust is properly your God. Everyone has set up as his special God whatever he looked to for blessings, help, and comfort. Okay, said another way, whatever you trust in, whatever you hope in, whatever brings you joy, whatever relieves your fears or gives you confidence or eases your worries, whatever you look to for security and peace and comfort, that thing is your God. And humans are not capable of having no God, even if it's just an eeny, teeny, bitty one. 
okay? You still have a God. Maybe your cell phone is your God. Very small God, but you still have a God. We all worship a God of some sort. So work could be our idol, achievement could be our idol, money could be our idol, maybe even religion could be our idol. We might even be worshiping religion. Whatever it is that brings that sense of comfort and security, family maybe, if it's our greatest joy and comfort. Or maybe you worship yourself, you're you're your own God. You trust in your own ability, your own efforts, your own accomplishment for safety and security. The list goes on and on and on, right? I could stand up here all day. We all worship something. But the idea behind the first commandment is this. The God of the Bible, the one true God alone, gives us security. If you've been around for the last couple of weeks, that's what we've been talking about as we've made our way through this epic story of the Bible. The God of Scripture alone is our one true source of joy. He provides for all of our needs. He blesses us. He cares for us. He loves us. He comforts us. He sustains us. He saves us. And no other God can accomplish these kinds of things for us. He alone is the source of all of our blessings, all of our help, all of our comfort. And as such, as the source of all of those things, he should be the one thing that our heart loves, that our heart is enamored with and attracted to for all of his mercy and all of his grace and all of his kindness that he pours out on us day after day after day. And the reason why I think God is so offended by idolatry is because idolatry is just stupid. Why would you put your trust, why would I put my trust in the money that I have in my bank account rather than the Lord of all creation who created all of it with just one expressive word of creativity? Why would I put more weight of importance on the happiness that I get from my hobby, whatever that thing may be, when God himself is the source of all joy and happiness? Why would I think that my easily inflatable or deflatable sense of self-image or self-worth is worth worshiping when it comes and goes so fleetingly and God is constant? Why would I trust more in my own accomplishments when I tend to fail so often and so miserably and God has never failed and not once in all eternity? Now, if I told you I was hosting a dinner party, okay, and I was flying in dozens of the world's top chefs to cook the most fabulous meal that's ever been created and I wanted you to come and feast with me to your heart's content on some of the finest foods that the world has ever seen, Would you stop by McDonald's on the way over to get a 99-cent cheeseburger and some fries? I mean, how foolish would that be? It would be foolish and and sort of insulting to me too, right? (laughs) But to some degree, that's, I think, what having a false god is like. That's what idolatry is sort of similar to. God has promised to take care of all of our needs to love us, sustain us, protect us, and redeem us. And rather than trust in him, we look to other things for these comforts and joys and securities, our satisfaction. We bring a 99-cent cheeseburger to the feast of the king. And how crazy is that? Now, look, if we can get the first commandment right, then we won't break the rest. Let me give you an example, okay? If we trust in the one true God, then we're not going to go pray to Buddha or a little rock statue of Buddha because we know that Buddha is dead. 
and this is just a rock that can't do anything for us. Okay, nothing close to what God has done for us. If God is the object of our affection, then we're never going to use his name as some sort of meaningless curse word that we throw around flippantly because he's going to hold a privileged place in our hearts. His name will be precious to us. If we loved him, we wouldn't violate that. If we trust that God is the provider of all good things and his promises uh, are true and he will take care of us and sustain us, then we're not going to work ourselves to death seven days a week. We know that if we rest once in a while, he is still God and he will keep the earth spinning and it'll be under control and we can take a break. And we won't murder because nothing will be so important to us that we see, see it worth taking from someone else, taking their life for the sake of that thing. God alone would be the object of our greatest desire and everything will grow pale in comparison to him. And we won't commit adultery because sex won't be a god in our lives. We won't bow down to it. It'll just find its proper and beautiful place within our marriages the way that God intended it to be. Okay, I can make this connection with every single one of the ten command- or other nine commandments, I should say. But suffice it to say that when God is the object of our worship in increasing amounts, right? I understand we're not all going to get it right all the time. But at least in increasing amounts, then all of the other things that threaten to throw our life so out of balance, will find their proper place. If we could only follow the first commandment, then our lives would truly be significantly better. Okay, we would be happier. How many of you would like to be happier? We would be more at peace. How many many of you would like to have more peace in your life? We would be more free. We would be more satisfied because we would have God and God would have us and we would have this growing sense of contentment that he is enough and he will provide. And Jesus knew this perfectly because Jesus knows perfectly and he was the smartest person who ever lived, okay? At one point, he was approached by this real cocky religious guy with all the answers And he wanted to make Jesus look stupid, so he asked Jesus this question. Jesus, which commandment is the greatest in the law? And I'm glad he didn't ask me that question because I would have said something stupid like the sixth commandment. Don't murder because it's it's really bad and God doesn't like it and that's an easy one for me to keep. So that's the most important one. (laughs) But Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter. And he doesn't quote anything from the Ten Commandments. He instead quotes God's law from Deuteronomy 6, chapter 6, verse 5, as a summary of God's law. You can turn there if you want, but you'll know it when I say it. He says, the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And he goes on and he says, and the second most important commandment is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. Broken up into two categories, just like the Ten Commandments, right? Category one is in relation to God and says simply, love God. Let him be the greatest desire of your heart. Fall in love with him again if your heart feels stale. Let his love for you shape your identity and penetrate your heart. Grow in your love for him and learn about his goodness of his, the goodness of his character so that you see him for the beautiful, loving father that he truly is, that the Bible tells us he is. How's that for a law? 
Category two is in relation to other people and says simply, love other people with the same kind of love that you have for yourself. See other people with equal importance as you see yourself. Care for the needs of others with the same kind of aggressive ambition that you have for your own well-being. Let your ruthless self-preservation spill over into ruthless self-denial so that you can lay your life down to lift up the lives of others like Jesus did. This is the law of love. And Jesus doesn't override and do away with God's moral law. No, no, no. Jesus, what he does is expands the moral law of God to the nth degree. He raises the bar even higher and higher than we could possibly imagine. To the point where we realize we can't be obedient to God in our natural selves. We need a new heart. We need a soft heart. We need a loving heart. We need God's gift of a new life and a new spirit where he empowers us to love him. And out of our love for him, we love others. And see, what Jesus understood, he understood so well, you cannot legislate love. It doesn't work like that. You can be a good and moral and upright person and you can still not love God. And you can do all the right things and you can follow all of God's moral law, but you can still not have God as the desire of your heart and the object of your worship. Because you can't make someone love by giving them a set of rules. What's one of the wishes that the genie can't grant in all the fairy tales? You can't make somebody love you. That's not how it works. But when God gives you a new heart so that he becomes the object of your worship, then all the other things in your life begin to find their proper place. And it all stems from this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before God. Love God with all your heart. Let him be the first and only object of your worship for who he is and all that he has done for you. Now, I think it would be beneficial for us to answer the question, why? Why does God want us to love him, okay? I know that you're probably at the point where your bum is feeling a little funky because of the, the benches, but hang with me here, okay? Why does God want us to love him? It's important. I get asked this question all the time. Why is God so jealous for love? And I'd say there's at least three answers. The first one, God wants us to love him because he is glorious and he deserves our love. If I provide for my children and I take care of them and change their nasty diapers and hold them when they're crying and take care of their every single need, whether they appreciate it or not, like you mothers know, it's often a very thankless job. If I feed them and I clothe them and I bathe them and I clean after them, should I not expect at least a little bit of love and affection in return? God deserves our love and affection because his character is so kind and so good, and so loving, and so patient, because he's gracious, and he loves us in spite of our thankless hearts, and our selfish worldview, and our constant failures. He just loves us, and God deserves our love and affection because he provides for all that we need. He makes the sun rise every single morning. He sends the rain and the cool seasons to Arizona where we desperately need that in the harsh sunny desert, right? And all that we have is a gracious gift from God, 
a blessing from him. All that we have is the result of his loving kindness to us. And so doesn't it make sense that we should love and appreciate him? Number two, God wants us to love him because it's actually in our best interest to love him. It's in your best interest to love God. He created you to love him and you will never be satisfied and fulfilled until you learn to love God. And if you want more joy and more peace and more fulfillment in your life, then grow in your love for God. He is the antidote to your emptiness. How many books are on the shelf in the bookstore about how to fill your emptiness? And that's it right there. Jesus is the antidote to your emptiness. Your physical body was created to eat food and without food it becomes malnourished and emaciated and eventually it dies. And the same is true for your soul. It was made to love God. And without that need being met, then eventually your soul will become malnourished and emaciated and die. And God knows this and he wants you to be satisfied and he wants you to be well by having this heart that is full of love for him. The third one is a little trickier. God wants us to love him because he himself is subject to the law of love. Okay, the final reason God wants us to love him is because uh, love reflects him. God himself is subject to the law of love, which means that God is eternally giving of himself to others, and he cannot not give himself. Even if the world had never been created and you and I had never been blessed with an opportunity to receive God's love, God has always been in a relationship of love with himself, eternally giving of himself. And the very nature of God is that he loves. The Father gives himself to the Son in love and the Spirit gives himself to the Father in love and so on and so forth. And that's how the whole thing works. And God created us, created us, to give of himself so that we might know his love and his joy. And God cannot not give himself in love. And this is why, this, this right here is why Jesus died to save your soul. To reveal the love of God. That even though it would cost God the highest price imaginable, God was still willing to give of himself so that you and I could be saved from a life of emptiness, from an eternity of darkness. And Jesus went to the cross out of God's great self-giving love. And because we're created in his image, we too are made to give of ourselves to God in love. Now before this turns into a classroom lecture, I can see it's warm in here. I might be losing a couple of you guys. Let me just close with a couple minutes of practical application. Because this is the real important stuff, right? All these great ideas, they're meaningless if we can't figure out how to live them out. It doesn't help us uh, stay in relationship with God if it's only ideas in our mind. Okay? We want this to be more than just ideas. We want God to be the object of our worship. So the lesson in summary is love God. Keep him first in your life. Now to make this practical is a little tough because if I give you some things to do, some commands, then I might be trying to legislate love in your life. So you need to take these things and discern what God is leading you to do. 
So here are a few suggestions. First, confess your and be specific. If there's something else that is your God, then confess that to God and come to him this morning and say, God, I'm sorry. This is interfering with my relationship with you. If you've been worshiping your achievements, your TV, your children, whatever, spend time before God and tell him, look, I'm sorry for putting my trust, my peace, my hope, my joy in this thing. And it'll set you free from the bondage to that thing. And allow God's forgiveness to wash over you and penetrate your heart. We're going to listen to a song and a movie here in just a minute. That would be a great opportunity. Instead of just watching the movie, just bow your head and spend a moment telling God, look, I'm sorry for the way that this thing has become my idol. And God doesn't hold that against you once you confess it. He forgives you. So let that peace enter your heart. You're his child. He loves you. He is always pleased to have you in his arms, no matter how far you've gone from him. And you're forgiven, and he remembers your sins no more. So confess them boldly, knowing his grace is sufficient. Two, pray and ask God to increase your love for him. Another opportunity to do this in just a couple of minutes, okay? He will answer you. To make it real simple, real specific, what if you made a commitment to pray for three minutes during your morning commute for God to give you a greater love for him? Or every time you put on your makeup or you did the dishes or while the microwave was running? I mean, what if you did something that specific where you said, every time I hit start on the microwave, I'm going to pray as long as that clock is counting. Just give me more love for him. Every time you brush your teeth, Pray that God would enlarge your heart so that you can love him more. He will answer those prayers. Three, spend time reflecting and maybe even journaling about your current love for God. How are you doing in that area of your life right now? Evaluate your relationship with him, your level of love for him right now. What kind of things get in the way? What idols are you susceptible to? What triggers do you hold on to that keep... Uh, I'm sorry, what triggers do these idols have that keep you seeking comfort in them or security or happiness? And what can you do after you've prayed and asked for help to change your behavior? Four, read your Bible. If you want to know how much God loves you, read your Bible. Start in the book of John or read in the Psalms. Look closely for all the ways that God tells you, I love you and you are precious. And your heart will grow in its ability to return love back to God. Five, if there's anything that comes between you and God, get rid of it. And I mean that with all sincerity. Do some open heart surgery before your false God leads you to death. And I mean it with all my heart. If, you're, if your idol is TV, then sell it. If your job is your idol, find a new one. If your money comes between you and God, give more of it away. If your hobby is your God, your God, quit. Give it up. And it may sound harsh and drastic, but if you have gangrene in your foot, then your whole body is at risk of death unless you do something drastic to remove the infection. And typically that means you amputate or you die. And Jesus himself said that if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. And I think he meant it as a power object lesson about how aggressively we should be seeking to eliminate the things in our lives that interfere with our relationship with God, with our love for him.
So say, sell your TV if that's your idol. I'm, I'm dead serious. Or you can give it over to me. I'm kidding. <laughs> Seeing if you're still awake. I'm just kidding. I have one. Uh, all three or four of them, not as an act of legalistic legislation of love for God, but in an effort to just eliminate the interference. Or boxing up a storage place if you don't want to sell it. Okay, to close, God wants to fill you up. To fill you up. He wants you to be full of his love. And he wants to fill up every square inch of your heart with his fullness of joy by being your only God, your only object of worship. But he can't do that if you've crammed something else in there in a desperate attempt to find satisfaction. So just turn your heart back to him and let his love fill you. I'm going to pray and then the movie is going to come on and you can watch it. You can listen to the lyrics. You can bow your head and pray or write or reflect or confess, whatever you need to do. But take this time to come back to God and say, God, here's, here's my heart. Take more of it, please. Father, we thank you that you are a God of love. Whatever else can be said about you, and there are so many things, one of the primary things is that you are a God of love. And I pray that you would help us be people who love you more. God, would you turn our hearts to you in love, and would you fill us with the fullness of the presence of your love in our lives. Amen.